0: Well, the the psalm that we've just sung, Psalm 19, uh, I think I'm right in saying was a favorite psalm, perhaps the favorite psalm of C.S. Lewis. And I know that lots of you uh, this morning, you you love the Narnia stories, no matter what age you are. And uh, I'm not going to spoil them for you if you've uh, never read them. But there's a wonderful line in The Last Battle where Queen Lucy says to King Tyrion, she says this, In our world too... A stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. In our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Chris read from John chapter 1, and this morning we're just going to look at verse 14. And so look at it again with me. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's one of those verses, isn't it, that uh, many of us this morning will be really familiar with. It's often put on Christmas cards. You've probably got it at home on a card. Um, It's inspired so much art and music. And yet it takes us right to the heart of Christmas. In our world, a stable once had something in it. That was bigger than our whole world. The word became flesh. And this morning I've just got two points, and they sound very similar. Okay, so we could all get confused. Here they are two points a gasp and a gaze. A gasp and a gaze. Firstly, a gasp. Some of you have seen the film, you can maybe watch it this Christmas if you've not. Uh, The the Theory of Everything, and it tells the story of uh, the theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, his early life, his diagnosis with motor neuron disease, and the title of the film is the same as one of Stephen Hawking's best-known books, The Theory of Everything. And that book, that way of thinking, it, it was Hawking's attempt to understand black holes, quantum mechanics, uh, the origin of the universe, all these kind of big things. And lots of people have wrestled with questions like that. Lots of people in our world, they've wondered, is there a theory? Is there an idea? Is there some way of explaining the universe, the world we live in? They've asked questions like, where did the universe come from? This is the big question why is there something rather than nothing and christianity has the answer john chapter 1 tells us it's not chance we're not here because of some uh, great cosmic accident no the clue to the meaning of the universe is found in the very first two words of verse 15 very first three words and the word and the word Now, some of you may know that uh, that word, word, is the Greek word logos, and so it's why we speak of biology, the study of life, it's why we speak of psychology, the study of the mind, and in the Greek-speaking world of the, the first century, the logos, the logos was a bit like that theory of everything, that theory of everything that Hawking wrote about. It was the reason... The reason behind the universe. And yet that reason was impersonal. That's how many people thought at at that time when John wrote these words. uh, For Jewish people, of course, the word word had a different meaning. Just think of Genesis 1. And God said. God speaks and the universe is formed. And in Isaiah 55, we read that God's word doesn't return to him empty. And yet, John tells us in this chapter, in John 1, John says that that word, that word is a person. See, look up the chapter, look at from verse 14 up the chapter to the beginning. John says, the word was there when the universe began. The Word was with God. Not only that, the Word was God. In other words, there was never a time when this Word was not. And what John is doing here in this first chapter of his gospel is taking you and I right into the heart of the Trinity. I was chatting to one of you this week about uh, John 1, verse 14, and you said that, there was a time you were trying to share your faith with somebody and you spoke about this verse, verse 14, and the person you were speaking to, they found it really hard to understand. And as we read this verse, verse 14, our mind is stretched. We're being taken into what Paul calls the deep things of God. But we're also seeing ultimate reality. In verse 3, John says that all things that have ever existed find their origin in the in the word. In him was life, verse four, and the life was the light of men. Now you and I, when we when we meet someone, we ask questions, don't we? We say like, what do you do? Where are you from? That kind of thing. If we were to ask the word those questions, well the word would say things like this, I made all things. I even made you. The word would say, I am eternal. John is introducing us in his first chapter of this gospel to the one who is the source of all the goodness, all the beauty that you and I see in our world. See, at St. Peter's, we're really blessed in this church family to have lots of people who are very creative. There's there's so much beauty around us. But John says there is someone who is the origin point. There is someone who is the creator of all of that. There is one who made all things, the word. Here's how someone has put it. Nothing is too big to have been created by him. And nothing too small. The highest ranges of the Himalayas, the desert reaches of the Sahara, the highest, widest, and deepest are his creation. The subatomic particle... The DNA helix, the far flung stars. I mentioned uh, Stephen Hawking a few moments ago. One of the great mistakes that many people make is to kind of see Christian faith and science as uh, real enemies. But the Christian worldview, it makes scientific inquiry possible, doesn't it? Because to be a scientist, if That's you this morning, if you're interested in science. To be a scientist is to be someone who is exploring the world God has made. It's to be thinking God's thoughts after him. It's to ask questions. It's to investigate. It's a a profoundly Christian profession. And yet, you and I should always remember that science has limits. Science answers the what, the how questions of our universe. But it can't answer the why. We can't follow the science and find the meaning of the universe. No, we need a voice from outside. And that is what John says happened at the very first Christmas. So you look back at our verse, look at verse 14. This is meant, this is meant to make us gasp. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh. This is what Christmas is all about. As Christians, you and I, we believe that God the Son, the one who made all things, who made all the beautiful things in our world, the creator, that he entered the creation. And this is the wonder of Christmas. It's like an author writing herself into the story that she's written. It's It's like a director suddenly appearing on the stage, suddenly taking on the leading role. See, Jesus was fully human. Here's how one theologian captures it he says, The incarnation is the supernatural act of the triune God. Whereby the eternal divine Son from the Father, by the agency of the Spirit, took into union with himself a complete human nature apart from sin. Jesus was fully human. See, there's a carol that you and I sing that um, forgets this. I hate to spoil it. Okay, away in a manger. What does it say? The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That, that's heresy, okay? There's another carol. I think it captures it much more beautifully. Once in Royal David City, tears and smiles like us he knew. And this morning, you and I, we need to know, don't we, as Christians, struggling, uh, weary, uh, battle, battling, we need to know we have a Savior who knows what it's like to be tempted, who knows what it's like to be physically tired. He knows what it's like to shed tears. Jesus still remembers that. And I think this is so beautiful. You see, at the fall, what did we do? Human beings, we we tried to be God, didn't we? We tried to be God and everything went wrong. And yet there's a beautiful symmetry to God's response. What did God do? God became man. God became man to undo all the wrong, all the effects of sin. He became flesh, and yet it's not even just that, is it? He dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. We're in Exodus at the moment on Sunday nights, and the end of that phrase, um, it could also be translated tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And it speaks this morning, we need to know this, it speaks to a tendency in God. The God we meet in the Bible is a God who wants to get close to his people. In the garden, in the tabernacle, in the stable. And then at the end of the Bible, coming down to dwell with us forever. In our world, a stable once had something inside it. That was bigger than our whole world. See, what is God like if you're wondering this morning, if you're thinking, you know, God, God would never want to be near me. Well, think again. He's the God who became flesh. He's the God who came to dwell among us. You and I this morning, we're not we're not drifting through some kind of impersonal universe. No, the God who made everything is the God who became one of us, and He did that so that we might know Him, and so that He might save us. And so, this verse, first fourteen, it should make us gasp. But that's not the only thing it should do. I think there's uh, another G this morning. It should make us gaze. That's the second point: gaze. Look what it says. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, at this time of year, we, we all feel the rush towards Christmas. I think like the days speed up, don't they? The, um, I don't know if there's still the same number of minutes in every hour. Um, I didn't teach for very long, but uh, the school Christmas run-in, like it's It's insane and it can be this kind of heady cocktail of sugar and excitement and adrenaline and that's just the teachers excited then the end of term and the christian life can often feel the same can't it and i love that this church our church it's called st peter's i love that it's got that name because it reminds us doesn't it that um, to use the the lingo of our day this church is a safe space For people who've let Jesus down, that was Peter, wasn't it? But if we were ever going to rename St. Peter's, and we're not going to do that, okay, don't (laughs) worry, we could rename it, why don't we rename it St. Martha's, St. Martha's Free Church. I don't think there is a St. Martha's, is there? So it it would be okay. Maybe it would be quite a good idea. Again, it's not happening. Okay, don't worry. If we made that change, what would it do? It would remind us of the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 10. It would remind us of the danger of distraction. It would remind us of the importance of sitting at Jesus' feet, gazing up at him, listening to him, so I think uh, being busy, being distracted is a huge danger for us, isn't it? We kind of love it. We kind of love to be busy. We, we, we become addicted to it. We can get into patterns of behavior that are unhealthy. And you and I, as God's people, we need times of silence. We need moments to reflect. And God wants to give us that even this morning. Look at the second half of the verse. Look what John says. We have seen his glory we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, glory is a really big theme in John's gospel. If you, if you were to glance at the, the first half of chapter 2 of John, you'd see this. Uh, the first um, 11 verses, they describe the, the miracle Jesus performed at the wedding in Cana and Galilee. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, Galilee and manifested his glory. Uh, John's gospel has got seven signs. I won't mention them all. You can see the next sign in the second half of chapter 2. And in many ways, the glory of Jesus was a strange glory, wasn't it? Glory of Jesus was a hidden Glory. Um, On February 12th, 2007, at 7.51 a.m., a a young man in a baseball cap, he walked into a metro station in Washington, D.C., he opened his violin case, and he started to play. And he looked like any other busker, and he played for just 43 minutes as all the commuters rushed by with their coffee and uh, all the stress of the beginning of the day. Out of over a 1,000 people who passed him by, 27 people gave him money. Seven people stopped. And in total he made $52. And that $52 includes $20 from someone who recognized him. He was Joshua Bell. Uh, He was, or is, one of the greatest violinists alive. He was playing a Stradivarius violin worth three and a half million dollars. And yet almost nobody recognized him. And in so many ways, the same thing happened to Jesus, wasn't it? When he was born, hardly anybody noticed. John tells us this earlier in our passage, doesn't he? As Jesus came to the world he'd made, the world he'd made, as he came to his people, Well, what happened? So many people rejected him, didn't they? The same thing happened as he died. And at the cross, Jesus, he looked like any other criminal killed by the Romans. Hardly anybody saw what was going on. Hardly anybody realized this is the most glorious thing that has ever happened in human history people didn 't know what they were missing. See so just look how John describes him in our verse. What does he choose to tell us about Jesus? He says that jesus is he 's full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth that idea that truth idea it 's picked up in the next verse isn 't it verse fifteen that speaks about a different John, John the Baptist witnessing of Jesus. But look at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received. What have we received from Jesus? Grace. Grace upon grace. And so here is what I want you to remember this morning. If you remember absolutely nothing else from this sermon, here's, here it is. The longer you look at Jesus... The closer you get to Jesus, the more grace, the more grace you will see. I think some of us, were afraid to get too close to Jesus, aren't we? We, we know what it's like to get to know someone be a bit disappointed by that person. Uh, to get to know someone and wonder if we can trust that person. And sometimes we bring experiences like that into our relationship with God, with Jesus. We, we think he's maybe, has he got a secret dark side? Well, no, Jesus is not like that. And when you look at him, what you see is what you get. We love that, don't we, in other people. Jesus is always like that, always full of grace. He always tells us the truth, and he does that even if it's painful because he wants what's best for us. He's always full of grace, grace upon grace, grace for every day, grace for every failure. I mentioned Exodus a few moments ago. In chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses asks to see God's glory, and what does God say to him? He says, "'I will cause all my goodness.'" to pass in front of you. Oh, my goodness. Well, this morning, is that the kind of God you believe in? See, the glory of Jesus, it's seen in His grace. It's seen in the grace He shows us, the goodness He reveals to us. There is fullness of grace in Him. There is grace that's sufficient for you this morning. And maybe this Christmas, what you and I, we need to do is remember what Jesus is really like. Maybe we have lost sight of Jesus. Maybe we've done that this year, and we we need to come back to him. We need to remind ourselves what he's like. He hasn't changed. Jesus is always the same. And this Christmas, he invites you, he invites you to behold him. And let me say this, friends, the devil hates when Jesus is the center of attention. The devil hates that. And yet this morning we are called, as God's people, we are called to fix our eyes on him. There's just over a week to Christmas. And of course the danger here is that I say something that just makes you all feel guilty about quiet times. That kind of thing. And yet, let me say something about quiet times. We could, what could we do this week? Well, we could read a gospel, couldn't we? We could try and find maybe, I don't know, a few hours just to read a gospel, one of the gospels. Or we could try and find just a couple of minutes each day to to read a passage like Isaiah 7 or 9 or 11 or 42 Or 49 or 50 or 53. We could think about Jesus. We could think about his pre existence. We could think about his birth. We could think about his baptism, his temptation. We could reflect on his ministry, his teaching, his miracles, his suffering, his death, his resurrection his appearances, we could think about his ascension, we could think about his intercession, we could think about his return. See, just listen to what Jesus says in John 17. Listen to what he wants for you and me this morning. Listen to what your future is. Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. What does he say about that glory? He says, it's glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Friends, this morning, as Jesus went to the cross, he thought of you and me. He says, we are those who have been given to him and his desire is that one day you and I would be with him. That, And yet it's even more than that. He wants us to see him. He wants you and me to see his glory. And one day we will. And yet every time you and I come to God's word on a Sunday or on our own, here's a prayer we can pray. Lord, show me something of your glory. Help me see you more clearly. See, I think this morning if we're struggling with pride or or shame or if kind of self-pity or greed has just got a hold of us, what do we need to do? We need to look at him. We need to come and look at the Lord Jesus. Because looking at him, gazing at him, seeing how gracious, how good he is, that is the only thing, the only thing that can Break the spell of sin. And yet, maybe this morning you feel too ashamed to look at him. Maybe you've known real failure as a Christian. Well, let me say this this morning. Jesus still wants your gaze. Jesus still wants your gaze. I mentioned Narnia uh, earlier on, there's a, a beautiful scene in uh, The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe that I was uh, reminded of as I read this verse, as I was preparing this sermon. I think I've used this illustration before, but uh, I can't help myself, okay? If you know the, the story, you'll know about Edmund, you'll know that he was one of the, or he was the meanest of all the Pevensey children, he mocked Lucy, didn't he? When she spoke of uh, Narnia, he, he lied when he finally discovered Narnia for himself. He betrayed all his siblings. He betrayed Aslan. And greedy for glory and Turkish delight, well, he committed treason. And he joined the White Witch. But when he finally came back to his senses, Aslan welcomed him back. And yet, there was so much for him to be ashamed of. Uh, He'd failed so publicly, and yet he was forgiven. One conversation with Aslan, and the past was past. C.S. Lewis, he, he recounts the scene. He says this that same day, the witch and lion met. Edmund was at his side, a crowd was listening in. You have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through. And after the talk they'd had had that morning, he just went on looking at Aslan. He just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. And so, friends, this Christmas, come back to gaze at your Lord Jesus. Come to look at your King and come to see his grace. Come to see his truth. And let's pray together.